Hello everyone, welcome to this Tea Time History Chat pre-recorded live. Sorry, I am out and about today as this is going out to you, but I did not want to miss a week because this week is of course the run-up to the anniversary of the gunpowder plot. And it's another one of those stories which has probably been, been summarised a little bit too simplistically. So we're going to delve into that. So thank you so much for joining as if you are as this goes live or if you're on the catch up, maybe you're listening on the podcast. Welcome. This will be going out on YouTube and Facebook. And like I said, the podcast, which is um, available on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also uh, sign up to my Substack, which is Philippa B. .substack.com and that is a weekly newsletter it goes out every Tuesday and that has links to any of the shows we've done um interviews etc 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 so if you want to do that that uh, that might help you catch up on things so anyway let's get into today so this uh goes out on the 1st of November the 5th of November of course is the anniversary of the foiled or failed gunpowder plot, the plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament with James I of England, 6th of Scotland, and his son, Henry, Prince of Wales, in it. Well, they wouldn't have been the only ones in there, would they? It was, it was going to be a total annihilation of the ruling body of the country. So let's have a look into why somebody might have wanted to do that, what is the run-up to it, who was involved, what happened, and two, it really, one, maybe less well-known reasons as to why the plot failed. So, um, Queen Elizabeth I died in 1603, and this heralded hope, really, for English Catholics, that the new regime under the Scots King James, his son of the Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, would allow them once again to practice their faith openly. That was not to prove the case. Persecution and intolerance continued and a group of disillusioned but energised young men would become embroiled in the largest domestic terror plot on English soil to date, known, of course, to history as the Gunpowder Plot of 1605. Now, Elizabethan England had become increasingly oppressive for Catholics. Places like Harvington Hall, which I've talked about extensively, uh, other places like Hinlip, Badsley Clinton, these were uh, homes of Catholic families who were forced to go to great risks to accommodate Catholic priests in order to be able to hear Mass. Their homes were significantly altered to create priest hides and other hiding places for the accoutrements of Mass. Um, Homes of, of known Catholic families would be raided in the search for these priests. And being a Catholic priest on English soil had been outlawed in 1583. And if you're caught, that was treason. It attracted the full horrors of a traitor's death. If you were found harbouring a priest, you would also face death. Now, that was the case in the shocking execution of Margaret Clitheroe in 1586, who was stripped naked and crushed to death um, 
underneath apparently her own front door um, for allowing secret masses to be heard in her home and for hiding Catholic missionary priests. Uh, priests. Now, the final Tudor monarch, Elizabeth was the final Tudor monarch, had always actively avoided naming her successor, believing that men will always want to worship the rising and not the setting sun. However, as her health began to fade uh, in the first few, uh, toward the end of the, well, the turn of the century from the 16th to the 17th century, uh, men nevertheless began to turn in the direction of the sun or the direction where they believed the sun would come up. And that was to the Scottish King, James VI of Scotland. Henry Percy of the, um, the, the, the northern old Catholic family, the Percys, was the ninth Earl of Northumberland. And um, he sent his second cousin, Thomas Percy, to visit the Scottish court and secure an audience with James. And by 1602, he had represented his, his cousin Northumberland to the King of Scotland on at least three occasions. What was he doing there? Well, he was trying to get assurances that when James came to the throne in, re, uh, in uh, return for their support, that he would give Catholics, that he would basically end the persecution of Catholics and allow free um, and open worship. And he had heard assurances from James on that, that um, not only would he end the persecution, but he would also stop the barring of Catholics from entering professions. Because practitioners, if you wanted to be a lawyer, for instance, a teacher would have to swear an oath of allegiance to the Protestant faith. And that barred many from entering into the professions. Now, the execution of Margaret Clitheroe may have hardened the resolve of some Catholics to remain in their faith despite the consequences whilst holding out hope that um, those circumstances would change on the death of Elizabeth. Indeed, there are actually still conversions to Catholicism. One such person to convert was a young man named Guy Fawkes. And Guy Fawkes was born in York in the north of England in 1570 and christened in the city where his father was actually a prominent Protestant figure. His father died when um, Guy was about eight years old. His mother remarried a Catholic man, although it's not clear how much religious influence he had on Guy. Guy did convert to Catholicism at some point before he reached the age of 21, because when he reached the age of 21, he sold all of the property that he had inherited at his coming of age and enlisted in the Catholic Spanish army. And in Spain, he changed his name to Guido and spent 10 years fighting for the Spanish, where he became well-versed, apparently, in the use of explosives. But we will come back to that. Um, there's a bit of a surprise in that one. And now, English Catholics had conceived their new king was going to be a moderate. Um, and anyone who had links to the Percy's may have known about the promises that he'd given to Thomas Percy. Nothing, however, crucially, had ever been recorded in writing. But meanwhile, Robert Cecil, who was the son of William Cecil Lord Burley and was his heir both personally and professionally, was a staunch Protestant. His father, it could be argued, was a pivotal figure 
in persuading Elizabeth into harsher and harsher treatment of Catholics in the country during her reign. The change in power at the top meant that Cecil, his father's successor as Elizabeth's principal secretary, needed to try to take control of the succession in any way he could and keep his position secure. And so from 1601, Cecil had also been in secret correspondence with James. According to historian Jesse Childs, there were around 40,000 practising Catholics in England at the end of Elizabeth's reign. She died in, 60, in March 1603. And eight and a half thousand of these were known recusants. Recusants were people who refused to attend Anglican services and so might would pay a fine. Um, but despite Lord Burley's successful campaign to persuade the Queen of the need to suppress her Catholic subjects, there's little evidence that many of these people were involved in or supportive of any plot to overthrow Elizabeth during her lifetime. Would this be the case with a new king and one from a different country at that? Well, if Sir Thomas Tresham was anything to go by, then James had no need to fear. Sir Thomas was a well-known recusant and professed devotee to Elizabeth I. And actually, if you want to read a blog that I've written about him, that is in my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash British history. And Thomas, um, yeah, well-known recusant, a, a best devotee to Elizabeth, was also the first to declare for James I in his own home county of Northamptonshire. Back to the Cecils. Well, Robert Cecil um, escorted the new king on his long process through the country attempting all the while to establish himself in a position of power as James's new indispensable advisor in this strange land with its customs and concerns. And as he made his way down the country, making various stops along the way, James actually took um, a, a nice leisurely progress down through his new country. Um, as was customary for a new monarch, monarch he would free some prisoners. However, there were none of the Jesuit priests languishing in jails um, amongst the freed. James did, however, stop the fines for recusancy, but only briefly. After discovering that the royal coffers were not quite as full as he had hoped and assumed, then these fines were reinstated. Now, the uncovering of a plot to kidnap James and the receipt of a rosary from the Pope to his wife, Queen Anne, persuaded James no doubt with significant and pointed guidance from Cecil to not interfere with the established laws and structures. So some Catholics, most of them, if not all of them, felt disillusioned. But for some, that disillusionment turned religious zeal into treasonous plot. Enter Robert Catesby. He is a member of a recusant Catholic family whose father William had been imprisoned for recusancy and he now headed a plot to kill and uh, the king and overthrow the Protestant regime in favour of a new Catholic one. He sent his cousin, um, fellow conspirator Thomas Winter, over to Spain to try to persuade Philip III of Spain, the son of Philip II of Spain, uh, of Armada fame and one-time husband to Mary Tudor, Mary the First, um, Mary Tudor, Mary the First, uh, to try and persuade Philip the Third to invade. Philip 
was not convinced to do so. Perhaps understanding that people's conflicting loyalties to country and religion made them unpredictable. Certainly that was the case. Or perhaps he simply did not want a repeat of his father's humiliating defeat in 1588. Catesby, though, not dissuaded, continued to plot the death of the king. His idea was to eliminate the entire Protestant regime, kidnap James's eldest surviving child, the Princess Elizabeth, and have her as titular head of a new Catholic regime. So how was he going to achieve this? Well, the king, queen, their eldest son, Henry, Prince of Wales, and the entire Houses of Commons and Lords would be gathered in one place at one time, the state opening of Parliament. It was a perfect opportunity to remove them all by blowing the entire building. The gunpowder plot was hatched and Catesby headed a group of young radical Catholic men. The group included uh, two brothers, Christopher and John Wright, Christopher uh, also known as Kit. Uh, they had been educated with Guy Fawkes in York and at some point Kit joined up with Guy in Madrid and recruited him to the group. And the plot seems to have been something of an open secret within Catholic circles. Um, most of those within that sort of circle being related by blood or marriage. Anne Vaux, who's a well-known Catholic recusant and relation um, to one of the cons other conspirators, Francis Tresham, son of Thomas Tresham, I've, I've already mentioned. Um, they were related by marriage. She expressed her fears that these wild heads had something in hand. It's worth noting then that this group of men do not appear to have had direct support for any plot from within the Catholic network of noble families in England. And indeed, many may have been concerned with what action these men might take. Had they any actual knowledge of a plot to destroy Parliament, they would have realised that it would have been their own close relatives that would also have been killed. And though who was a close follower of the Jesuit priest father, Henry Garnet. Um, he had links to Catesby and she begged him to talk to him and persuade him against any extreme course of action. Some of the conspirators themselves indeed expressed concerns over how many innocent lives would be lost as a direct consequence of the explosion. Catesby, however, is someone that nowadays we might categorise as ideologically driven. He was an ideologically driven terrorist. His beliefs were so strong in the cause that any action, any innocent loss of, loss of life, it was all justified. Now in July 1605, um, just ahead of when Parliament was supposed to open, 36 barrels of gunpowder were hidden underneath the House of Lords. When ignited, the resulting explosion would destroy the Palace of Westminster, including the ancient Westminster Hall and Westminster Abbey and much of the surrounding area, killing hundreds and hundreds of people in the vicinity. That would include not just members of the royal family and nobility, but ordinary people, people who were there to petition the king, people who come out just to see their king. But course the plot was not successful and there are a couple of reasons why. The first one is a letter 
was received by Lord Monteagle on the 26th of October, warning him not to attend the opening of Parliament for it was to receive a blow. He immediately took that letter to Robert Cecil, who took it to the King, and a search of the rooms below Parliament was ordered. They discovered nothing seemingly unusual, but they did come across a man who gave his name as John Johnson, and he was there because he was the manservant of Thomas Percy, or Percy was one of the conspirators, and he was a well-known Catholic. Now that roused suspicion. So they went back and um, where they, to where they had seen Mr. Johnson and arrested a man who, under torture, later would reveal his name as Guy Fawkes. But who had sent the letter? So perhaps it was his brother-in-law, Francis Tresham. Uh, Anvo may have been involved. Um, Francis may have told Monteagle about the plot and so the accepted story of course has become that Francis himself wrote this slimly disguised warning to stop Monteagle going to parliament that day but that's it was an incredibly risky stupid move from Tresham that some have speculated means that maybe he didn't write the letter maybe maybe Monteagle already had wind of the plot he had some knowledge of it. And so he dictated the letter himself to find a, a way of getting his knowledge of it out without implicating himself. But even without the letter or the discovery um, of the plot, it would still have been unsuccessful. So how come? What was the second reason for its failure? Now, this comes back to my earlier comment about Guy Fawkes being an expert in gunpowder and explosions. The gunpowder was ruined. It had decayed. It had been moved into the rooms within Westminster in July, but it had now sat for too long because the opening of Parliament had been delayed due to plague being in the area. And when gunpowder decays, Apparently, this is not something I've seen, but so I'm told, it separates into its component chemical parts. It renders it harmless. Now, surely Guy Fawkes would have recognised this. There's somebody else who might also have known this. Remember, the letter to Monteagle came on the 26th of November. Guy Fawkes wasn't arrested until the night of the 4th going into the 5th of November. Had Cecil discovered the plot much earlier, but for the most dramatic and optimal effect on the king left it till the eve of the opening of Parliament to discover officially what was going on. So with the plot foiled and Guy Fawkes in custody, some of the remaining conspirators rode north. This is incredible. So either still in belief of their cause or just pure desperation, they they rode north, they went knocking on the doors of people they suspected of being sympathetic to the Catholic cause, telling them that the plot had been successful. The parliament had blown up, had been blown up, and the king was dead, and asking they were asking them to join their uprising, but people did not respond. They had completely overestimated 
the support they thought they would get. Their aim still seems to have been to kidnap James's daughter, Princess Elizabeth, who was at Coventry in the Midlands. However, they were being um, chased down, or they, or they thought they would have been, and they ended up at uh, Holbeach House in Shropshire. They'd gathered weapons and gunpowder on their journey, in fact, raiding Warwick Castle, um, and the gunpowder that they were carrying, however, had got damp. In an attempt to dry it out, it was laid in front of the fire at Holbeach House, where they got there, um, where a stray spark set it alight. And some of the group were maimed. One of them was blinded in the resultant explosion. But the men there, wounded, desperate, resolved to fight to the death when local militia surrounded them. Gang leader Catesby was mortally wounded in the resulting shootout. Meanwhile, Guy Fawkes was being tortured first uh, by being hung in manacles and then racked at the Tower of London. Um, now, torture was against common law, believe it or not, at this time. It was seen as something Catholics would do, not the Protestants who had elevated themselves above these barbaric Catholics. However, he was racked. Um, and uh, only under these extreme circumstances did he give up any names at all. The 13 conspirators all had, well, they had various different ends, um, which you might be interested to know about. So Francis Tresham, he was imprisoned in the Tower of London and he actually died of natural causes um, on the 23rd of December. So he escaped being tried. He escaped a treason, uh, sorry, traitor's death, but he was posthumously beheaded and his head displayed with the other gunpowder plot conspirators when they were displayed on top of the House of Commons. Um, there's um, two brothers, there's two sets of brothers involved actually, Robert uh, Winter and Thomas Winter. Robert um, did not stay with the other plotters at Holbeach in Staffordshire to make their final stand, but he was captured in nearby Hagley, uh, tried on the 27th of January and executed in St Paul's Churchyard on the 30th of January. His brother Thomas, um, who was, he actually um, uh, gave the fullest account of the plot, was tried on the 27th of January, the same, and executed in Old Palace Yard at Westminster on 31st of January. Uh, Thomas Percy was killed at the shootout at Holbeach House, his head posthumously cut off and displayed on top of the House of Commons. John Wright was killed again at the shootout, had the same uh, fate as Catesby and Percy. Uh, Christopher Kit Wright, the man who had gone to Madrid to uh, recruit Guy Fawkes. Uh, he again was killed at the shootout and his head was displayed uh, over the House of Commons. Robert Keyes, he fled uh, London at the same time as the, the rest of the conspirators had done, but he didn't join them at Holbeach House. Again, there he was captured, tried on the 27th of January and executed in St Paul's Churchyard on the 30th of January. John Grant, he was the man who had been blinded by the gunpowder explosion at Holbeach House when they were trying to dry out the gunpowder. 
He was captured again, tried on the 27th of January and executed um, in St. Paul's Churchyard on the 30th of January. Thomas Bates uh, didn't go to Holbeach House. He did escape London, but again, he was captured. Same fate as Grant, same fate as Keyes, tried on the 27th of January and executed in St. Paul's Churchyard on the 30th of January. Ambrose Rookwood, he was injured in the explosion and was captured. Tried alongside the others on the 27th of January and executed again alongside them on the 30th of January in St Paul's Churchyard. Sir Everard Digby fled with Catesby but didn't accompany him to Holbeach House. He was captured and tried. He was tried separately from the others because he pleaded guilty and he was allowed to make a speech. And in that speech, he referred to the promises that Catholics had believed King James would deliver on at the beginning of his reign that he hadn't. Um, he was executed alongside the others um, in St Paul's Churchyard on the 30th of January. And then, of course, that only leaves us still with Guy Fawkes. Um, he actually attracted the admiration of the government and the king by admitting almost nothing, despite his... Uh, incredibly gruesome torture, which the king had authorised the use of on the 6th of November. And um, Fawkes did give up some information. His testimonies of the 7th, 8th and 9th of November revealed more information to the authorities. And that was how it became possible to pick up some of the other conspirators. He was tried with the others again on the 27th of January and executed he was executed at Old Palace Yard, Westminster, on the 31st of January. He, he escaped a full um, traitor's death of being hung, drawn and quartered because his neck actually broke in the first stages. So then what, ha what happens now? Why are we still, why, why do we talk about gunpowder, the, um, the gunpowder plot? Why do we have a bonfire night here in the UK? Well, it was fairly ingrained fairly quickly because Parliament passed the Thanksgiving Act and this established an annual church celebration with sermons, ringing of bells and prayers being given on the 5th of November each year. The Act continued uh, in some way, shape or form during the Puritan rule um, when uh, England and well, Britain, England, Scotland and Wales was a, a, a republic um, and I don't know why, perhaps because it was a celebration of a foiled attack on Parliament, of course. Um, it did continue, but you did, uh, after the Great Fire of London in, in 1666, excuse me, in Restoration London, bonfires were actively discovered, discouraged. Now, while the official ceremonies waned over time, the popular festivities marked by bell ringing on bonfires and the fireworks we still have today, grew into the popularity that still remains. By the late 18th century, the day was increasingly used, however, to settle local scores, a bit of an excuse for disorder. So the celebrations often got out of hand, which is very good, is it? Now, the custom of burning effigies of the Pope or the devil seems to have begun during the reign of Charles I, he reigned from 1625 to 1649. Of course, it was his beheading that led to the Republic. Um, and um, that burning of effigies became more popular during the crises over the succession of James II. 
1678 to 81, um, it was only after the removal of the laws against Catholic worship that Guy Fawkes uh, replaced the Pope as the figure who was burned on 5th of November bonfires. And you used to have people going around asking for penny for the guy, penny for the guy, you'd give over some money because they made an effigy of Guy Fawkes. Now, the Thanksgiving Act remained on the statute books until 1859. Um, but like I say, has remained in the calendar, though it is somewhat now overshadowed by the phenomenon of Halloween, which has been imported from the US over here. Um, but another thing that remains is that to this day, there is a ceremony held in Parliament when the reigning monarch comes to do the state opening of Parliament, the Yeoman of the Guard, the King's ceremonial bodyguard, better known perhaps as beef eaters, will perform a ceremonial ceremonial search of Parliament's cellars. But one thing I will say on the cellars thing, which might surprise you, is there's actually um, some accounts which it's, it make out that it wasn't a cellar. In fact, it was a ground floor storeroom, not an underground floor so storeroom. So a, 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 um, a, a room actually on what we would call the ground floor. Uh, perhaps you would know as the first floor, but the the the, the uh, not underground, not in a cellar. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, had those thirty six um, barrels of gunpowder actually successfully exploded? Had Parliament had met? at the time that they were originally planned to and so the gunpowder hadn't decayed and it had exploded we would have lost the palace of westminster which actually we lost in the end anyway in a, a fire in the rent during the reign of victoria um but we would have lost the great hall which we still have we would have lost part of whitehall we would have lost westminster abbey um perhaps the river would have flooded that area um and it makes me wonder whether we would have seen a move of political, the, the sort of seat of political power, either temporarily or permanently to a different location, perhaps in the Midlands, perhaps up north. Um, but would what would have happened? Would there, would there have actually been a Catholic uprising if the plot had been successful? The evidence suggests that no, because the conspirators had told everyone as they rode north that it had been successful and yet they still didn't get any support. They had totally overestimated this, the amount of support they'd get for their cause amongst fellow Catholics who would probably have all been suspected of collusion in that atrocity had it have been successful. Most people would have wanted to avoid that as, as much as, as possible. They... The, the Catholics at this time always had this competing loyalty between country and faith. And actually, most of them didn't want to have to make a decision on that. Um, so if you are going to a bonfire night this weekend, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the fireworks. I hope that's given some interesting context as to why we do it. Um, and uh, and a, yeah, a few interesting facts that perhaps you didn't know about before. Um, I certainly wasn't aware that Guy Fawkes had 
changed his name to Guido because he'd gone and uh, fought for the Spanish. I wasn't aware that the rooms in which the gunpowder was kept were actually at ground floor level. Um, so there's some interesting, interesting things in that account. So I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, and I will be back live live next week. So three o'clock for Tea Time Live. And I will be here tonight, proper live live for History After Dark, which is History After Dark on YouTube. And it is our final deceased git this evening. So we've got to the end of the deceased git series. We're going to be covering our final deceased git. It's actually a group. It's the Gluttony Club we're covering tonight. And we're going to do our final scoring. So of our last three deceased gits of the series, they will get their scores tonight as well. So I hope you can join us. Um, if you are, are a bit of a Tudor, interesty, aficionado, nerd, <laughs> then um, please remember that we have the Tudors Online History Festival going on in a couple of weeks' time, a few weeks' time, three weeks' time. It's the 17th till the 19th of November. Um, you can get tickets, they're only £20, and you get seven talks, two live events, entry into a free, free prize draw. Uh, you can get your tickets at the tudors2023.eventbrite.co.uk. Um, and don't worry if you can't make the actual weekend, everyone with a ticket will have access to all the talks and after the event, the recordings of the lives as well. Um, until the 31st of January 2024. So there's plenty of time to watch and re-watch the talks. Um, I've been I've been watching them in getting in preparation for getting everything ready. And I have to say, I think you will, well, you of course I'll say this, but you you will thoroughly enjoy them. Um, some um really thoughtful and um new topics, actually. That I think you won't have seen too much on before. So I'm going to leave you there. Thank you so much for joining me on this live, not quite so live, pre-recorded live. And um, watch out for my posts about where I've been. It's very exciting. If you're in my Patreon, of course, you will be getting early access to the information and some extra behind the scenes stuff. If you want to join my Patreon, it's only £5 a month and there's loads of stuff in there. Um, that you can pick up and join in with, including Book Club, which the uh, I will be announcing the books for 2024 very, very soon. And yes, it's £5 a month. You can join at patreon.com forward slash British history. But please, even um, if you don't join my Patreon, I just want to say thank you for supporting me here. Please give this video a thumbs up, comment below, and share with your friends if you think they would enjoy it. And um, yeah, just thank you very much for your support. So I will see you all hopefully tonight for the live for History After Dark. And if not, I will see you next week. All right. Take care. Bye bye.